National media continues to exaggerate and promote misleading negative headlines designed to diminish the rule of law and those whose job it is to enforce it. Remember, the only people who want to defund the police and dismantle these agencies are the criminals. And don't forget to thank a cop. Now, let's start the show. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us. We've got several people today. First on, on our list of guests is ASAC Polo from DEA. He's the assistant special agent in charge. Good morning, Polo. How are you? Good morning, Cherry. Very good in yourself. Doing great. I understand we have a take-back day. Explain to our listeners what that is and how they can take part in it. Yes, good morning. Uh, Sherry, I'm honored to be on your radio show this morning, uh, relaying this important message on Take Back. Uh, we're hosting the 25th National Prescription Drug Take Back Day uh, from uh, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. on today's date. It's a no-cost opportunity for the community to uh, anonymously dispose of unneeded expired medications. Um, and it's throughout Arizona, not only in Arizona, but also nationally. Uh, we have about 5,000 uh, local drop-off locations nationally, and within Arizona, we have 80. Here in southern Arizona, we have 22. So if people go to, if you want to know where one of these locations is, if you go to www.deatakeback.com, it'll give you a list of where the locations are. And I know a lot of the police departments do it year-round. They'll have a container yes, in their in their lobby, don't they? Yes. As a matter of fact, yes. Uh, actually, one of your uh, uh, guest speakers, uh, Chief Nolan, uh, at the Sawadi uh, Police Department, they have one there. But there, as you mentioned, www.dataketback.com is one of the locations. Uh, and if people cannot bring them on this particular day, uh, throughout the, the year, we have them at every at the hospitals, clinics, uh, police departments, everywhere we can, but we try to do it all in uh, twice a year. Uh, last April, actually, we are, is in the other take-back day, and that's where we were able to uh, pick up uh, over 7,475 pounds oh of unused medication. Yeah, and, you know, this is important for, for all of us, uh, especially right now we're, that we're fighting the fentanyl epidemic. Uh, we have over 110,000 people that have died, uh, unfortunately, through uh, overdose overdoses, and some of them are accidentals. And what had, what's been happening is that uh, folks like you and I, uh, when we go to our doctor, we get a prescription medicine, and uh, we may not uh, consume all of it uh, if we're ill, and then what happens, it ends up in your medicine cabinet. And uh, other family members end up uh, utilizing and consuming or taking those uh, prescription meds over to their the schools, you know, to the high schools or even middle schools. And then they start interchanging them there. And now then they end up becoming addicts to it. Once they find that they cannot uh, get any more of those those pills, they start going in the black market on the streets. And that's where we have this epidemic where the drug cartels uh, from across the border are uh, manufacturing these uh, fake oxys. And, and, uh, but then on top of that, and now they're, 
making them into uh, different color variations, red, blue, green, purples, pinks, you know, to, it lures our young children to think that uh, this is like candy, but in all reality, you're playing Russian roulette with your life. Have you ever had anybody who uh, sells these illegal drugs drop stuff off on a take-back day? Oh, uh, believe it or not, we have had some. <laughs> we've had, uh, yes, we have had some <laughs> some folks. But uh, for us, uh, uh, this is something that we do not. Uh, uh, we're not here after the addict. Our 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 main priority is to just take back these drugs. And uh, this is an anon. That's correct. And this is an anonymous form to turn them in. We will ask no questions when somebody brings them in. We will just take them in and then from there uh, dispose of them the way they're supposed to be disposed of. Now, we do have some some things that we do ask because of the fact that uh, we will not accept the syringes, sharps, and uh, or if it's an illicit drug, then we'll book it differently. But uh, what we do take is um, at the collection sites, the tablets, capsules, and uh, patches, vapes as well. Uh, but w- of course, the lithium batteries need to be uh, removed because eventually, uh, within a week's time frame, once we do all the collection throughout uh, Arizona, we all uh, all of us team up and then we take it to a location to properly dispose. But of course, you know we end up burning all that uh, stuff, and it's no uh, it's no joke when you got lithium batteries in there, and that's why we. <laughs> We have all these different things. <laughs> yeah. We have all these little precautions that we end up taking because they end up popping out. And I was going to say that uh, takes the excitement out of it, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's correct, sir. But uh, and then another thing is, Sherry, that we're facing is every all all um, all fentanyl that's well all illicit drugs that are, that are seized. You know, we analyze them, but more specifically, fentanyl. Right now, it used to be. Uh, uh, several months ago, four out of the 10 pills was a lethal dose. Now we're, we have through analysis throughout the country and through all our laboratories that we end up uh, analyzing fentanyl seizures, seven out of 10 pills is found to be a lethal dose. Wow. So two milligrams. And, uh, and I try to explain it this way because a lot of people say, well, what's two milligrams? They really don't know. But if you were to get a sugar packet, for instance, and you put 18 granules of small little granules of sugar on the table, that is enough for lethal dose. And, and kill unfortunately, you. on the oh yeah, that would kill you. And that's where you know. And I'm sure your guests, and specifically Mr. Nolan, gets phone calls from you know from parents and and uh, from cousins and. Everybody just worried about this thing going on. I get calls all the time at the office because uh, the fact that uh, you know their, their their son or daughter died, and um, this week actually we just kicked off the uh, Red Ribbon Week, and uh, you know to celebrate and pay homage to a drug enforcement agent that got uh, kidnapped, tortured, and killed down in Guadalajara, Mexico, back in 1985. But of course, it uh, sparked the drug awareness. And uh, to just say the no, no to drugs. Very cool. Well, I appreciate you coming on, Paulo, and explaining all this to us. And if you have anything laying around the house that you don't want, take it down and get it disposed of properly. So 
Appreciate you calling in. You have a good weekend. Great. Likewise, ma'am. Thank you very much. It's an honor. Okay, take care, Polo. Okay, our next guest is Hal. Hal Kempfer. He is he is the CEO of Global Risk Intelligence Planning. And I have a question for you, Hal. Yeah. Iran and China keep poking at us like they, you know, like they're being bullies. They're they're trying to instigate something. What's going on with that? Uh, China's poking and bullying, huh? Yeah. Well, they they've got some bizarre claims, and uh, basically they're they're what we call hegemons. They're pushing their boundaries. They uh, they have a you know they, they if you look at where they were say thirty years ago and where they are today. Their economy has grown leaps and bounds. Their global presence has grown leaps and bounds. And and under Xi, particularly, which kind of surprised a lot of people, nobody really, I, I got to tell you, a lot of people did not see this coming when Xi took over. They thought he was going to be kind of in the same mold of his predecessors, where they wanted to grow the economy, but they weren't going to take all the political stuff. He went a different direction, and they he has poured a tremendous amount of money into the military He's did this thing, and, and, and you know I, uh, I do a lot of work in maritime security under a special Department of Defense initiative where I go all over the world, but I spend a lot of time over in Asia as well. And, uh, and we work with our foreign partners out there. So we've been watching this for quite some time, but they painted, they took a bunch of Navy ships, painted them white, and called them Coast Guard, right? Oh and it was a little bit of a deception thing because they go, Oh, it's Coast Guard, right? And everybody loves the Coast Guard because they do search and rescue and all that stuff. Not this Coast Guard. (laughs) (laughs) This Coast Guard goes in there, and as we saw this last week, they ram Philippine boats and stuff. This is a very aggressive Coast Guard. And uh, and with that, they also have this, all these other, what we would call civilian ships. It's a kind of a, a civilian, I'm using the term loosely when we talk about anything out of the People's Republic of China, but it's called the Maritime Militia. And basically, it's uh, it's, a, it's a way to mobilize all their ships out there into uh, into uh, something that works for the government, if you will. And they have this claim through the South China Sea, which basically is a claim the South China Sea. It's called the nine line nine dash line claim that cuts into everybody's exclusive economic zones: Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, all across the board. And of course, the International Court said no, no. There is absolutely no basis under the uh, U.N. Convention Law of the Sea where you can make that claim. And China's like, yeah, okay, whatever. We're just going to keep doing it. That's that's what China's been doing. That's what we saw this last week. And we also saw this thing with the uh, – and with that, they've been doing very aggressive things at sea. But this last week, of course, we saw they had a, uh, a fighter jet uh, fly within 10 feet of not just a U.S. plane. We've had some very close calls. In fact, we go back 20 years, one of the fighter jets actually hit one of our planes, and uh, and we had to, and our plane had to make an emergency landing. Their plane didn't make it at all, but our, our plane made an emergency landing. But uh, but they flew within 10 feet of a B-52 bomber. Wow. And the thing on that is, not, I mean, to say reckless doesn't really describe how stupid that is. By the way, their pilots aren't that good either. That's another issue. But but <laughs> to fly next to a strategic bomber, you know, this is what we carry nuclear weapons in. I'm not saying that bomber had nuclear weapons. In fact, I'm pretty sure it did not. But to fly that close to one of our strategic bombers, 
if there had been a mishap in the air, you can imagine how that could have escalated very quickly. Oh, yes. So, yeah, so that's, that's, and then uh, we could spend hours, but uh, yeah, I go all over the world, Africa, South Asia, all over, and they got that Belt and Road Initiative where they basically go in there and says, hey, we'll build this for you, and then the countries go, great, and then they say, oh, you're going to build a road or a railroad, they, they do it, and when they get done, they bring in all Chinese labor out of China, they build the railroad, and they say, okay, and by the way, here's your bill, and uh, <laughs> and they have uh, what they call it like a, tr- a 1.1 or 1.2 trillion dollar debt bomb in uh, China because they've loaned, they got these usurious loans to all these countries around the world. And some of the countries have simply said, we can't pay it back. It's just, it's impossible. And in some cases, the countries actually changed government and they realized that the previous regime that they just kicked out had, had secretly signed these notes to China. And they go, you, you basically have made our country, you know, Indebted. indebted to China. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so they're, you know, it's a mixed bag. I mean, they're being, they're being very aggressive, but then again, you know, they got that problem where literally a trillion dollars worth of loans could evaporate, which would cause massive ramifications in China, obviously. And then they got their own internal problem with their financial problems with, uh, with all the massive building that they did. And now they got this real estate crisis and another major real estate development firm basically went bankrupt this last last week and so a lot of these things that everybody was sitting there in awe you know 15 10 15 years ago saying wow look at this they're building like four you know huge cities every every three years or something well those huge cities got built nobody moved into them they're all empty so um so now they got this massive real estate thing which literally could tip the economy. And uh, so everybody's kind of wondering where is this way going? Go. So Xi, yeah, so Xi's doing a lot of stuff ex, you know, what they're doing is ex- externalizing internal pressures, which is, um, you know, China or Taiwan, all that stuff, to basically get everybody's attention away from the fact that they've completely mismanaged the economy and it might collapse. A little minor point. So, yeah. That wouldn't break my heart. What about Iran? Oh. What's Iran doing? Why well, are they... Iran, well, they may have been behind. You know, we don't know. You know, they are the major backer of Hamas with the and uh, and and whereas we said we don't have any evidence of uh, that Iran was the orchestrator of the October seventh uh, attack. It's it's it really it, it defies <laughs> logic that they didn't know all about it. And there was that Wall Street Journal article based on some source that said that they had a meeting before the attack and that Iran literally greenlit doing that attack. And, of course, since the attack, not just what's happening with Hamas, but you got Hezbollah doing stuff on the northern border. It has not weighed in completely. It hasn't crossed uh, what the the Israelis say is a, a red line in terms of their operational tempo up there. But a lot of back and forth shooting you know there's there's been deaths on on both sides uh with that and the and the worry is that Hezbollah which is much much larger than uh Hamas would weigh in as a second front in Israel but then we see across the across the board you know attacks on our our installations in Syria 
and uh, and Iraq to include a, a base where I was stationed, you know, way back when, and uh, um, and also uh, uh, the Houthi rebels uh, that are down in Yemen uh, across uh, along the Red Sea across the uh, very strategic Bab el Mandeb Straits launched cruise missiles and drones that were targeting Israel. And I have to tell you, a lot of us got looking at really? The Houthi rebels can launch a cruise missile and a drone that can get all the way up to Israel? That was that was actually, I don't know if they would have made it. I don't know where they would have actually ended up. But the fact that these Houthi rebels had that type of capability was somewhat stunning. Fortunately, we had a cruiser right there, and we shot those down. But it gives you an idea of how Iran is kind of pushing with all of its proxy terror groups and insurgent groups across the region. Now, we shot down those missiles in the Red Sea. Uh, yesterday, we did airstrikes on uh, on facilities tied to the the uh, the uh, Shiite extremist uh, terrorist group that, that launched uh, attacks on our bases, which is controlled by Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps, IRGC. Um, so, and those are pretty big airstrikes, from what I understand. Uh, so we're responding in kind uh, with these things. But that's Iran. They're trying to push it. Now, it could be very possible uh, that, you know, they had this big plan that Hamas would do this in the south, Hezbollah would open up in the north, and then all these other groups would attack uh, U.S. installations, and there would be this big war in the Middle East. And then there's hypothetically that maybe, let's just say theoretically, that I, that Iran was close to Russia. Let's just say hypothetically they had a relationship, you know, such as Iran shipping all those drones up to fight the war in Ukraine, right? Um, and that Russia would love to see something in the Middle East that would draw ammunition and weapons that would go to Ukraine. Instead, they go to Israel, which is kind of what's happening. All right. And then to go back to your first question about China, the other hypothesis is that, and China would love to see the U.S. bogged down supporting a major war in Europe, bogged down actually involved with a major war in the Middle East before they do something in the West Pacific. That's what strategists are looking at. That's what they're saying. You can't prove it. Uh, Maybe somewhere they've got some super, you know, top secret, you know, stuff that says, yep, this is the big plan, but um, but that's the hypothesis. Regardless of that, you have to look at that anyway, because those opportunities for China are presenting themselves, and weapons and ammunition is getting diverted uh, that, to Israel that probably would have gone to Ukraine. So, well, as long as we're not sleeping at the wheel. Because I I just look at everything that's going on and listening to you and listening to some of the news. It's like, okay, hopefully we're awake and we don't have another Pearl Harbor. Because it just seems like they're they're doing things that are setting everything up to get ugly. Er. It's ugly, but it's ugly er. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. You know, the other other side of this, though... um, um, I guess I guess in my world I, this is a this is the bright side I guess um, the other side of this <laughs> is there, is that uh, Russian troops are refusing orders uh, on the line. Well, I can't uh, blame them. Ukraine. I certainly well, can't blame them. Well, what's happening is they're they're being executed. 
Oh no! And uh, and uh, so that was something that that uh, John Kirby talked about yesterday at a press conference. Is that they're they're shooting their own troops and they're threatening to shoot and they may already be doing it, shooting entire units. Oh my! God. This this goes back to like Roman legions with the concept of decimate a unit. Yeah. Um, and so don't know. I mean, I say that's that that may be the bright side in that. Um, finally, the Russian troops are having enough. We we're just kind of wondering how how bad was it going to get? Bad leadership, bad logistics, bad equipment, bad tactics, bad everything before the Russian troops had had it. And that gets back to that idea that we might be looking at 1917 again, where the Russian troops literally stood up and killed their officers and marched on Moscow. Um, I'm not going to I'm not going to be that optimistic that the Russian troops are all going to do that, but we're seeing some cracks and fissures in their in their overall cohesion, if you will. And well, we'll see how far that goes. So, well, hopefully things will get better, you know, mm-hmm. somehow. <laughs> um, and I appreciate yeah. you calling in and giving us an update on on what's happening over there. You watch the news and you just start putting pieces together, and it's like, oh my God, what are we doing? And why? Oh, yeah. What's the point? Yeah. So you have a good weekend, and and we'll stay in touch because I wanna I wanna know what's going on. Okay, you too, Sherry. Thanks yeah. for having me on. Okay, take care. Okay, in the studio we have Chief John Nolan of Sawarita. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Sherry. And we've got a whole list of stuff to talk about. But the first thing, I think everybody needs to know you're hiring, right? Yes, we are. We're hiring police officers. And what's the process? What do people have to do if they're interested? And I should say we're also hiring community service officers. Those are people that deal with uh, certain types of policing incidents. They're civilians. They do wear a uniform. uh, And they can provide everything from traffic control aid to officers and deal with smaller incidents. But, uh, yeah, we're hiring police officers and looking for well-qualified people. Okay, a community service officer doesn't carry a gun? They do not. They uh, they actually, for us, they do carry a taser for self-protection. Uh, they do or can carry uh, pepper spray for self-protection as well. But uh, they do uh, traffic control. They'll take a... Um, Crime report with very few leads, with no active suspect on scene, etc. They'll also do animal control duties as well. So uh, a very good position. And uh, we have two of those uh, openings right now. We've got some testing in process. But if people are interested, uh, please go online to our town HR department and you'll find the ability to apply there. Okay, so if you're a community service person, you don't have to run a mile carrying a 50-pound bag of something, and you don't great. have to do a 1,000 push-ups in 20 minutes. Great, great point. No, this is all <laughs> internal training. Um, we do um, uh, training internally for a number of weeks, but there is the physical standard is uh, basically a medical exam you take when you're in the testing process, but you don't have to jump a wall, climb a fence, do a body drag, any of that type of stuff. Okay. Do you have your own, um, when you call 911 communication center, when people call 911, do they call you? No, we do, you do not. You call the uh, sheriff's department okay. and they dispatch for us through a contract. Okay. So are you hiring dispatchers too, or do you know? 
No. So we wouldn't have our own dispatchers. That would be done through the county, through our contract. Okay. Tell me about your law enforcement. Is it What do you have to do to be law enforcement and carry the gun other than be a good shot? <laughs> yeah, well, a uh, good shot is important, yeah. but there are several other things. So you have to uh, go through our testing process, which has multiple phases or stages. So you have to do the POPAT, police officer physical aptitude test, uh, P-O-P-A-T. That's required through AZ Post uh, that obviously certifies officers in the state of Arizona. And that includes um, being able to get over a six-foot wall, uh, climb and uh, scale a six-foot fence. You do a short run up to that wall and fence and then a 25-yard run after that. Um, You have to do a body drag, 165-pound body drag. 165-pound? Yes, yeah, so you pick up a 165-pound body and drag it, or you can grab it and drag it, hence the, hence the word drag. So you can grab it by an arm, a leg, and simply drag it the required distance. <laughs> you should use real people and see how that works out. <laughs> no, we use the dummy. <laughs> we use the dummy. So, okay, how many officers are you looking we for? Are, we are 60 sworn. And we have a number of them in training right now, either FTO, Field Training Officer Program. Uh, we have a number in the academy. I think we have three in two different academies right now. So they're technically hired, which reduces the number we are able to, to, to hire, the FTE or full-time employee equivalent. Uh, however, I think we're about uh, six down right now. So we're looking to hire at least uh, six police officers. Okay, once they're hired and they go through all this training, how do you how do you separate them out? Uh, different specialties. Do you have canine people? So we have right now. Uh, you go through the academy, then you go through what we refer to as post basic, which is about three to four weeks long, and then you go through um, the FTO program, which is field training officer program. Okay, and then you become a solo police officer. So that takes about a year, five months of an academy, a solid four months of FTO, and that this is for a brand new officer, not a lateral transfer. And then um, the testing process at both ends uh, takes about an additional three months, so roughly about a year. But you're being paid during that time as well, so as a trainee. Um, uh, we have special assignments, collateral duties, etc. So we have detectives, if that's what you're interested in. We have school resource officers. Um, We have traffic uh, officers. Some people call them traffic DUI officers. And so those special assignments are available to people. Those are examples. And then we have collateral duties, everything from UAV robotics, uh, where they operate drones and robotic dogs that we recently uh, got into here in the last year or so. You have a robotic dog? We have robotic dogs, plural, yes. And they're actually very useful. We actually have sent them on actual calls for barricaded subjects. Uh, the dog is uh, enters the home, and it gives us live eyes and ears on what is happening in the home. So um, an officer doesn't necessarily have to turn the corner, go into the room. We can send the robot in. Okay, I know you have to have a pilot's license to operate a drone. What kind of license do you have to have to operate a dog? It's typically no license. Um, It is vendor training. So you buy it from a particular vendor and then um, we uh, have them trained. So right now, because they're so closely aligned, we use our 
uh, UAV operators or pilots uh, and robotic operators at the same people. They have to have the skill set in both. So do these dogs bark or anything? They can deliver a communication oh. device such as a cell phone, drop phone, etc. Um, so uh, they're very useful. I want one of those. And, <laughs> and, and they don't make a mess in the house. Exactly. That's what I'm thinking. No food, no mess in the house. That would be awesome. So do you have real dogs? Uh, we have comfort dogs currently. We're looking okay. at training the comfort dogs um, to do stuff by scent, such as sniffing for electronics. They would be able to aid for uh, on search warrants, things of that nature. We're not there yet, but that's what we're examining. And I recently had a discussion, actually this last week, with our FOP, the union for officers, about uh, trying to push forward a traditional canine program. And so we would realistically try to start off with two canine handlers, two canines, uh, the vehicles that are equipped, etc. So in my former career out of California uh, as a lieutenant, I uh, supervised and ran the canine program there. And uh, so I'm familiar with what uh, it takes uh, to put one of those programs together. And I, uh, the FOP, as well as all of our command staff, want to see this pushed forward. So we'd like to accelerate that. So who would, where would you get the dogs? Who would train the dogs? So we would probably reach out to allied agencies and see where they are currently purchasing uh, their police canines. But there are a number of organizations that will... Uh, sell or provide a dog to us that is applicable for that type of police work. So what kind of dog are you thinking of? The Malinois? I know Belgian uh, Malinois are good police dogs. Uh, some shepherds, depending on their line, are still good police dogs. Um, but I, I haven't come to a decision. I think we'd have a discussion amongst command staff and the uh, number of officers that may have skill sets in that area and maybe even call in some allied agencies and see what they're currently using that is successful. Last week was the canine trials up in Scottsdale. Did you go? I unfortunately wasn't able to go that. It, it was pretty spectacular. It, you watch all these handlers and they came from all over the country doing what they do best and it was pretty impressive. You know, the dogs are amazing animals. They can do fantastic stuff. And they're clearly loyal to their handlers. Oh, absolutely. You could tell. They didn't leave their sides. So, okay, what else do we have going on there? You, you're recruiting people. Let's talk about the, um, the bail system, the no bail system. How is this affecting Salarita? So it's impacting us. Um, I, refer to, I refer to this as no bail, low bail. And uh, I've written some articles in our annual report connected to this uh, for the police department. I'm not a proponent of this no bail, low bail. And I mean not a proponent of it at all. It eliminates responsibility and accountability Mm -hmm. of those where clear probable cause has been established to make the arrest. And we are having people that are being released on a number of crimes to include some crimes of violence or threatened violence and repetitive theft, repetitive vandalism, and a variety of other crimes where they are let go within an hour of being booked or dropped off at the county jail. So um, we have recently uh, gone to a process where we are implementing a SPD recommended bail schedule. 
And so our officers will be trained on this here in the next uh, few to several weeks. And it is a way to give a recommended bail to the judge at initial parents with an explanation on why that amount of bail is being recommended. So sometimes it's because it's a crime of violence or the person has been re- uh, arrested a, a number of times over a number of years or the person is repeating uh, misdemeanor crimes. So I, I want to make this point and thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak this morning. It is not just crimes of violence or threatened violence. It is the uh, misdemeanor crimes, the uh, F6, the lowest grade of felony crimes, the F5s, etc., that continue to plague our and other communities here in our area in Pima County. And bail requires commitment. It's skin in the game by the person who's arrested to behave because I can point to uh, a number of cases, dozens and dozens and dozens of cases in our own town where people are being released and they go back out and they reoffend. sometimes the same crime or a different crime. And I believe that should be taken into account by the judge who's making the decision on whether or not bail is applied or not. Oh, absolutely. It's gotten to the point where we've got people flying in from other countries so they can rob people and, and steal and, and they ship their goods back to where they came from. And that's the reputation we have now with this bail reform that I think has totally failed. We need to take a quick break. I've lost track of time here. We need to take a break. We'll be back in a few. (laughs) This is JL reminding you the city of Tucson election is vote by mail only. Ballots will be mailed October 11th. Please look for your ballot, fill it out, and drop it in the mail by October 31st. In-person ballot drop-off locations are listed on the county recorder's website. Let your voice be heard. Vote for a cleaner, safer Tucson. You don't need to own a gun to make sure your children are trained and know what to do if they come across one. For the past 20 years, the folks at Diamondback have taught firearm safety and concealed weapon permit classes. Hi, I'm Ben Anderson, Director of Training at Diamondback Shooting Sports. Sign up for a class today at dbacktraining.com so you can be prepared for the unexpected. We're open seven days a week, so stop in and introduce yourself. We're located in the Gaslight Plaza at the southwest corner of Broadway and Kolb on Tucson's east side. LawMatters1030.org is a nonprofit that needs your support in El Tour de Tucson, either by riding a bike or walking in the 5K. To support us while we support law enforcement, please go to LawMatters1030.org support page to sign up. We'll see you there. The Cochise County Sheriff's Office is hiring detention officers. You must be 18 years old and have a high school diploma or GED. Starting salary is $40,000 a year, plus health benefits and retirement. Deputies must be 21 years old, so this is a great opportunity to start your law enforcement career at 18 and then apply to be a deputy at 21. To apply, visit Cochise.az.gov. Start your career as a detention officer at the Cochise County Sheriff's Office. Visit Cochise.az.gov. Thanks for staying with us. Our guest today is Chief Nolan from Savarita. And we were just talking about bail reform, what they refer to as bail reform. And 
basically it's like no bail you can go out and do what you want to do and you'll be back on the street in no time at all do you think this is because of the prosecutors or the judges that are hearing the cases or a combination why do why are these people just it's a free-for-all why is this happening it's rarely one thing so i believe it's a combination i believe prosecutors uh are being given direction prosecutors have uh beliefs on whether or not um bail should be applied i think the same thing is true of the court system and um i'm pretty clear on reading uh ars uh statutes that um there are strict uh guidelines on bail but it does not say they automatically get out of uh jail or a booking without bail uh they need to take certain things into consideration and one of the most important portions of that is a danger uh, to community, danger to others. And there's more than one type of danger. So on a physical, I'm sorry, on a violent crime, there's the person that shot at somebody or tried to stab somebody or tried to um, stab somebody. And then there's the lesser violent ones, if you want to, if I put it that way, where somebody is punched, striked, kicked somebody so you have to evaluate those carefully how much of a danger are they if they are released from custody and um, the uh, statute doesn't talk about just uh, physical violence or just violence being a danger there are other types of dangers to a community a store that gets shoplifted time and time again a place that gets vandalized over and over simple misdemeanor crimes, which are quality of life crimes, which are the majority of our calls for service than the majority of crimes. So felonies happen with lesser frequency than misdemeanors. So from my perspective, it's very clear that if somebody is having uh, their home burglarized, technically a property crime, but that's your castle. That's where you live. You want security there. And somebody looks at that solely as a prosecutor, a judge looks at that solely as a property crime. Um, From my perspective, it's not. And clearly from the victim's perspective, it's not. You invaded my my space. Well, this is true of organized retail crime where people do this as a living. Yes. They steal. And sometimes they steal small amounts and other times large amounts. So uh, we've had people um, steal anywhere from $27 to $2,700 and different numbers, larger amounts even. And so uh, our goal at Sawadita, you'll go into our police department, you'll see it on just about every wall uh, throughout the police department. Quality is job one. Yes, I did take that from Ford. But (laughs) uh, the idea behind that quality is job one is we do a quality investigation. Uh, We document it appropriately in in a good uh, report, and then we let the prosecutors make the decisions on how far they take that case. But um, my philosophy and my directive to my staff, uh, in particular, if it's a crime of violence or threatened violence, we enforce the law. When we develop probable cause, we enforce the law on a crime of violence or threatened violence. Um, and um, this is geared towards. Uh, the last two years, finding out that our youngest school shooter in U.S. history was six years old. He came yeah. to school and yeah. shot their teacher. And our oldest now, I believe, mass shooter, 
uh, is was 73 years old. I might be off by a year or two on that. So the the template or the idea of what people look like and who's going to commit the crime is done. And what is required is accountability. So that quality investigation, that quality report that tells the story will help inform uh, prosecutors, courts, etc., on holding them accountable. Yeah, I think that's a big thing that's missing today is accountability for your actions, whether it's verbal or physical. You know, people just don't want to be accountable. They just run amok. <laughs> it's yeah, like, it, this is wrong. Very true. And if you've got this no bail, low bail approach, um, do people like you? Is everybody a a victim uh, so there's no or little prosecution in certain areas of the law, then people like you because you're not being held accountable. But people do need accountability. I mean, it's um, drug dealing. Drug dealing's bad. It's horrible. It's a felony. It impacts communities. It kills people. But there are no drug dealers without those people purchasing it. So somewhere there's a solution out there where there's some both accountable, where there's some level of accountability for those people in possession of drugs. And there's clearly accountability for those people that are selling drugs and using. Yes. And using. I've heard people say, you know, my, my child doesn't use drugs. He just sells them. I said, Oh, that makes it all right. Hello. (laughs) Don't tell me that. (laughs) So, Okay. I I could talk on this topic forever because it's so frustrating, but I've I've heard people say, you know, well, they're just using drugs and it's a victimless crime. When you look at all the retailers that are being robbed so that they can support that victimless crime, there's an issue here. There's, there's victims everywhere. Yeah, it's not even close to victimless. One, uh, when we let somebody use drugs, I mean, I think California's gone the 180 degrees the wrong direction with taking possession of heroin, methamphetamine, cocaine, etc., and going from simple possession as a felony to a misdemeanor. And now officers, a number of them, don't even enforce it anymore because um, there's no accountability like, to it. But the idea that it is victimless is is incorrect. So when people are using drugs, they're harder to employ. This is just one example harder to employ when they're not employed they're not making money or as much money so they go to other means to obtain everything from food but jackets devices etc so we found people that are um, under or using drugs that are not just stealing to uh, prevent them from starving to death that's really not occurring out there um, they're stealing and they're stealing all sorts of stuff uh, rollouts from uh, large stores now, shopping carts full of the, full of stuff, and they will roll out with that, and it's five hundred dollars worth, a thousand dollars worth, two thousand dollars worth, etc. These are significant losses for the store, uh, which is not a victimless crime. No, and we've then, got stores closing because of it. Correct, and then they are selling those products uh, online, in person, etc., and trading them for more drugs. Yeah. So it's not victimless. It's there's a there's a cycle in there, and this is what I mean by the person who is simply a user or a possessor. There must be some level of accountability. That means some time in a county jail, a facility. I'm not anti 
treatment. If somebody needs treatment, let's work to get them treatment. But I want truly evidence-based programs that will help them get off the habit or the addiction of using a particular type of drug. And I see or I hear about different programs that claim to be evidence-based and they're anything but their success rate is minuscule. So it's not 90% success. It's not 50% success. It's not 25% success. But we're pouring so much money into these, I guess, with a hope. But as I have said for years, hope is a boat that don't float a lot of the time. So it can't be done by hope. You've got to be able to show success in these programs since we're spending primarily taxpayer money mm-hmm. on these programs. Yeah. And we need to we need to find a better way of doing what we're doing. Let's go back to the old way of doing things. Hold people accountable. You're selling drugs, you're going to jail. You're using drugs, you're going to jail. You're robbing a store or stealing from a store, or like you said, the rollout, you're going to jail. But they've made it really easy here in Tucson because all the buses are like free. So you can go rob a place, jump on a bus and leave. (laughs) You know, you're gone. By the time police get there, you're you're history. So let's talk about, you know, this has to have an impact on the mental capacity for, you know, your people. The how do they feel when they're working to help people, you know, keep the community safe and these people are just let go constantly? It's like that has to be frustrating. Yeah, I was going to use that F word as well, frustrating. So (laughs) it is frustrating. Um, There's a lot more that officers do than uh, when I started back in 1984. Um, So it's it's much different. The vehicles are different. The equipment is different. The statutes are different. The way you enforce and what is expected by our police officers now is much different than it was in the 80s, the 90s. Yeah. Uh, the 2000s, et cetera. So it changes on a regular basis. And so it, it has a, a toll on our officers. And right now we are uh, implementing, it's in progress, uh, a variety of steps, sort of a multi-pronged uh, process or approach rather uh, to uh, officer well-being. So we're actually utilizing one app off a smartphone for officers right now and we put this in effect probably about two months ago. And uh, there are several of our officers utilizing the app. And then they're providing us positive feedback on it being successful to address certain things connected to their wellness. So it, it can be physical wellness. It can be mental health, etc. So myself, I wouldn't have thought an application. It would not be something I would go to. Um, I'm from a different time period a little bit, but I'm still currently working, so I understand it. Um, but some of that, some of those apps work. So we have one that we've put in place. We're now experimenting with a second application. We also have a, uh, a new vendor that we've made contact with that has helped us, um, come in and, uh, provide, uh, critical incident stress debriefings or SISMs now as they're calling it and, um, a professional that deals with law enforcement specifically comes in uh, to a group of officers and goes over a critical incident. We had this recently for a juvenile that committed suicide Mm. and the officers had to deal with it when the parents were home, et cetera. So clearly devastating impact. And I feel for that family. Um, 
but I also feel for my officers. So we got positive feedback on that. So that's sort of that second prong. We now have this professional group of people that can come out and go through that process with the officers on what they experienced and perhaps what they may continue to experience in days or weeks or time periods to come. So uh, that's beneficial for us. And we've also made an improvement in our one-to-one counseling. Um, I'm blessed by having a town council, uh, Mayor Murphy, uh, Vice Mayor Egbert, and uh, all of our council members who actually listen to me, listen to our manager, our assistant manager, and I'm blessed by having our current manager and assistant manager who will listen to needs and then make decisions after contemplating what I what I provide as far as advice or or desired resources, etc. So we have the ability to have one-on-one counseling now, and it's for a lot uh, longer period of time. You used to get like, I don't know, 12 sessions, and now you get easily twice that many or three times that many, and then the request can be made, I still need additional sessions in anything from therapy to counseling to I just need somebody to talk to that type of stuff. So that's sort of our three-prong approach right now in officer wellness. And I'm going to put a shout out to both my commanders who have pushed um, this for us. Um, Commander Allred and Commander Amato have pushed this. And if my uh, if all my staff, all my officers and managers don't know, um, uh, they've been a driving force behind this. So the kudos should go to both those commanders for pushing this forward as well as some others. And those resources for wellness are available to our uh, civilian or professional staff as well. Now, we were talking about that search and rescue, and it, this was brought up a while back, where one of the trainees had never seen a dead body. And I I wouldn't have thought of that just, you know, if you've never seen it, it's kind of shocking, and it can have an impact on you. Um do you have your resource officer, not your resource officers, your community people, are they trained in situations like that where, you know, they, they come up to a, a bad situation and there's a body there? Are they trained to how to handle that? Yes, we, we give them training. Um, um, so our community service officers could come upon a fatal traffic collision, a pedestrian struck that type of stuff, a body found. So they may have to assist with some of that. Um, They're not going to be touching or manipulating the body or anything like that. But our civilian staff, our crime scene specialists, which most people think of as CSI, Mm -hmm. um, our crime scene specialists, they're all civilians. They go to the autopsies, they take the photographs, all that type of stuff. So we do provide uh, training for that. Uh, We have sent people, just in a general sense, but specifically to dealing with um, homicides and things of that nature to schools all over the United States. I often say we're not LAPD and we're not NYPD. We're in between, but don't confuse us with podunk PD. Um, we're not Mayberry. So we're somewhat sophisticated. We're always willing to learn uh, from other agencies. And quite frankly, we um, utilize uh, success stories from other agencies. And sometimes we're providing the success story because we're pushing on technology mm-hmm. such as Sawadita PD was the first agency in the state of Arizona with a licensed UAV program. And others have reached out to us from Oro Valley, Marana, et cetera, to implement theirs. How did you guys start that? So they did the work at their end, but 
we were able to guide them to some of the answers to start their own programs. Very cool. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I, so your programs for the mental health and wellness are available to all your employees. Every employee. Okay, that's what I was kind of trying to figure out. Okay, that's that's very cool. Do you have a problem with the people coming over the border? We do. So we have um, we have a contract. We have a grant that we connect with, uh, Operation Stone Garden. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, we're thankful for that grant. Uh, obviously, it's a federal program run through the state of Arizona. Uh, we apply for it each year. We've been fortunate to receive it each year. And we use those for operational patrols, both in the town of Sawadita and a large envelope outside the town of Sawadita. So it's possible people will see marked Sawadita police units and officers um, well outside our traditional jurisdictional area because we work with Border Patrol Mm -hmm. uh, to find those that are uh, trafficking in people. It goes back to sex crimes and a variety of other crimes that they traffic people for. Human trafficking, yeah. Yep. Um, And uh, drugs and obviously weapons. So those are the three primary things that we're out there working uh, on. And so um, most of our contacts, we contact Border Patrol and we have to, and we turn them over to Border Patrol. But we've had incidents where we call Border Patrol and because they're so busy doing other duties now... Um, that they say, we can't respond, let them go. Yeah. And as a law enforcement agency, we have to follow the law and our process, uh, policy and law requires certain things. So we'll do what the law says. Okay. We only have two minutes left. What is your solution for the border? I mean, you know, we've obviously got new situation with the border. Can you sum it up in two minutes? Again, it's a multi-pronged approach. It's also the policy of uh, elected officials from the president on down and what they're going to do to approach this. But we have people walking over in lines in the hundreds. And I think we've had a few cases where thousands have walked over at one time. Um, So our elected leaders uh, need to, especially at the upper end of government, uh, the federal government need to uh, look at some different approaches and what they're currently doing. It's not working in my opinion um, as an individual who lives in Saudita, as well as uh, the local police chief there, uh, seeing what my officers are going through and the number of people uh, that are crossing, claiming asylum and then moving into all sorts of locations throughout the U S there's not a lot of uh, background process going through on there. And some of the uh, countries they're coming from, um, even if we had the personnel to do backgrounds on them, you're not going to be able to get that. They don't have the systems. They don't have the the uh, criminal justice systems. They don't have the, the databases, et cetera, that um, more developed countries have. And may not even allow you to have that information because you're a different country. They might just keep it to themselves absolutely that's true because they don't want those criminals back in their their (laughs) their country okay i want to thank you i want to thank polo for coming on i want to thank cal for coming on and rich tracy is sitting in the corner i want to thank him for coming in (laughs) chief thanks for coming in and and telling us what's going on down there appreciate it sherry happy to be here you too bye-bye